0: Hello and welcome to Called to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, non binary, and trans experiences. I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, they.
1: And I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her. Today, we're discussing with Blair Osler, and we're so excited to have her here today. So excited
0: for this conversation. But before we jump into that, we want to start off by seeing what brought us queer joy this week. So, Colette, what brought you? Queer joy this week.
1: I think I mentioned on the last podcast, I was excited to go to Vegas with a couple of queer friends, and it was so lovely. It was just so nice, even though I was totally third wheeling it, to spend time with this lovely queer couple who are just a normal couple and they're so happy. And I think so often so othered when we talk about queer couples and they have the sort of relationship that I want one day where they're just them and they love and support each other. They take turns doing the dishes and they plan fun things and they chill in the evenings. And it's just, it was really nice. How about you, Kate? What brought you? Oh joy my this goodness. Week? My goodness. I've had that experience where I've been like, I, I, I just want a boring life. Like I just want yes. to be boring. <laughs> That's what I want. It doesn't need to be fancy. Just just a nice, boring life as a queer person, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually was scrolling through Instagram once again. And I had recorded a video a while back that I was super anxious about. It was one of the first videos, actually, Colette, you and I started a conversation about. Okay. and it was, it was about the Brothers Osborne. Um, yeah. T.J. Osborne, who plays for Brothers Osborne. I was singing one of the songs and I'm not a singer. I do not sing well, but it was part of my queer joy to be so excited about that. But this week were the CMT awards where he is at the country music awards, kissing his fiance, which is just like huge, big deal. That was, mm-hmm. what, that brought me a lot of queer joy.
1: That's awesome. Claire, did you have and- anything that brought you queer joy this week? <laughs> Oh, I I'm putting have, you on the spot. I'm like, my existence is queer joy. I um, love
2: that. <laughs> oh, no, I would say, you know, someone who brings me a lot of queer joy is I'm friends with a prominent Mormon lesbian therapist, Laura Skaggs. She's amazing. And just every time we hang out, we go for walks down at uh, Provo Canyon. And every time I talk to her and every time I engage with her, I walk away feeling like I can take on the world. She brings me so much queer joy and happiness. And one thing she's really taught me lately is that It's really okay to invest in myself and being on the queer femme spectrum. A lot of times we're taught not to invest in ourselves and not to invest in our happiness, but she's teaching me to invest in myself and invest in my happiness. And it's bringing me all the queer joy.
1: That's awesome. I'm glad you're able to do that. So the other thing we want to do as we introduce guests is have them do what we call their Queer in 60 Seconds. Tell us about yourself and your queer Mormon story before we dive into everything else. Would you mind jumping into that, Blair? So I am a born and raised Mormon. I'm a ninth generation
2: Mormon. So for me, it's more than a religion. It's a cultural identity. I bleed Mormonism. I often joke that if there's Mormon DNA, I have it. I also realized around puberty that there was something different about me, something queer going on. And it took me a while to come to terms with my own queerness because in the way that I grew up, And in my uh, experience, being queer was bad and you did not want to be that thing. So, coming to terms with that took a long time all the way up into adulthood. But I'm definitely queer, definitely here, definitely Mormon. I would also say that I don't think that queerness and Mormonism are mutually exclusive categories. I think for a lot of people, it's like you're either a faithful Latter day Saint or you're in the queer community. And I'm like, nope, you can be both. And I am both and I'm going to stay. Right here on this fence until people get used to it.
0: Can we get your pronouns? And also, how many letters would you say you, you have on the LGBTQIA acronym?
2: That is such a fun question. I've never been asked that question. I've been on almost a hundred podcasts and I've never once been asked that question. And so I absolutely love it so much. So my pronouns are she, they, he. For a while, they were just she. And then I adopted the they. And then a very interesting, funny experience happened. And it brought on the most gender euphoria I've felt in a long time. I was misgendered as he. And it felt amazing. And I loved it so much. And I'm like... Oh, I want, I want that too. I'll take all the pronouns. I am a pronoun loving queer. I want them all. I want them all. And I want to change my mind. And then I want to come back to them and go around the block again. So I use all the pronouns. I don't know how many letters let's go for, for all the letters we have L lesbian. So I'm kind of lesbianish as a bi person, but I normally don't call myself a lesbian. Even if you engage in lesbianism, I don't, I don't know exactly how that would work. Gay. Sure. I like the same sex. LGB, B, bi. That's definitely me. T. So the T1 is really interesting because under some definitions of biological sex and assignments, I am the T. Under other definitions, I'm not the T. And that's because I claim the I. And the I makes it tricky to identify what cis and trans exactly Mm -hmm. are because a lot of intersex people are always in transition. And that may be towards their assignment and away from their assignment, depending on how that goes. So I I, I claim the T in the sense that I'm trans-ish, <laughs> which means I'm transitioning in a lot of ways. And I take a lot of the same meds that a lot of trans women do. LGBTQ, definitely the Q. I'm on board with the Q. The Q is my favorite out of all the letters. Uh, the, the Q is my favorite. Just, just queer works just great with me. A, oh, I'm not gender or asexual. I'm like all gender and all sexual. <laughs> I don't know if all sexual came out the right way. (laughs) You get what I'm saying. So and some include the P, which would be pansexual or poly. Either way, yep, I'm those two. So I don't know. I claim a lot of the letters depending on who I'm talking to. But for the most part, I just consider myself bi and intersex. And I usually just go with the Q in common conversation depending on how in depth of a conversation I want to have with that person you know what I mean so yeah I'm, I'm a lot of the letters
1: I love that that's one reason we love the cue saying queer why we have that in our podcast name is just so all-encompassing and so I love that that can just hold whatever you want it to
2: Well, and the other great thing about queer that I don't know if other people appreciate this as much as I do, because it lets you be out of the closet without fully out of the closet and disclosing everything about yourself. I like the certain amount of privacy and ambiguity queer provides. It just means I'm a part of that community. You don't need to know everything about that, but I am a part of that community. And then you can come out as far as you want to go in that conversation. So like queer is good in so many
1: ways. Well, and I love it also in just reclaiming queerness, you know, having it go from a slur to something that we've reclaimed and now love. So I, I love that part of it as well. Amen. Well, and the funny thing is too, like that's exactly what the word
2: Mormon is Mormon started as a slur that other people called, you know, my great, great grandparents, they called the Mormons as a slur. And then Latter-day Saints were like, sure. Yeah. Call me a Mormon, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like it's the reclamation of just being like, okay, you can call me these slurs, but they're not bad words. I'm queer. I'm Mormon. (laughs) I love that so much.
0: I think that's a great transition to talking about queer Mormon theology. (laughs) I imagine lots of people who will listen to this will know Blair Osler's name and know um, that they have, I don't know, multiple different avenues of interacting with the public, including a published book titled Queer Mormon Theology.
1: I have some questions about that. Colette did you have any before? I think just diving into it like what inspired you to write this book and I'm sure we will have more specific questions as we go on.
2: Yeah I wrote this book almost out of necessity. I felt Mm -hmm. like I sat at an intersection to where this story wasn't being told. There were faithful books about being LGBTQ and Mormon, but they usually centered around same-sex attraction and solving Mm -hmm. one issue. Or it usually fell into lines of, well, just stay true to the brethren and it'll all work out in the end. And I did not want to write that book. There are also lots of other books and commentary and media written on why the church is wrong and everything that is LGBTQ is in opposition to the church. I didn't want to write that book either. (laughs) The book I wanted to write was really just my authentic experience with both and putting these puzzle pieces together and saying, look, it doesn't have to be the way it is right now. It could be different. So I really wrote the book with the idea that I have this experience, I have these ideas, And if people are willing to just have an open mind, they might see something that they could not see anywhere else. And that's queer Mormon theology. What, what the heck is that? Why, why?
1: but
2: it does exist. Yeah, exactly. And now it exists outside my head. So someone somewhere (laughs) on a podcast was so wonderful. And they were talking about all the different types of Mormonism and how all types of Mormonism and how people engage with it are legitimate and valid. And they said, if you haven't entered the Osler verse yet, I encourage you to look at the Osler verse. And I was like, I was like, Oh, my gosh, that's actually a really good way to put it, because in my own little verse head, I have this beautiful queer Mormon imagination of what it could be like and how all the pieces could fit. But it was only in my head. It was only in my little tiny Oslerverse. And so by writing down the book and sharing with it, everyone, it's like, yes, you are now entering the verse of Mormonism and queerness let me tell you something it's going to be a little different than what you're used to but you're all going to like it okay come on in take your shoes off we got pride stickers and you know what we're going to have a good time and i really just wanted this to be something a little more a little more hopeful and a little more joyful when when rightfully so a lot of the conversation around queers and mormons is dismal and and rightfully so i'm that's not a criticism of that i just wanted something different. I just wanted something beautiful, something hopeful. And so that is the, the Osler verse. So anybody who comes to interact with me in some way on social media or a podcast or my book, you are now entering the Osler verse.
1: <laughs> I
0: love that. There's another one. I don't know if you know this one, but so I listen to a lot of podcasts and I both listen to like all the <laughs> LDS queer podcasts and mormonland is one from the salt lake tribune that i listen to fairly regularly and they had dr jennifer finlayson fife on a couple weeks ago and they also had dr michael austin do you know dr michael austin
2: Blair? Mike Austin, of course he, he's the editor of my, my book actually. So yeah, Mike Austin. Well, you said Dr. Michael Austin. I'm like, you mean Mike?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
2: So, so I'm
0: listening to them. So there's also this other element of, I listen to a lot of these podcasts and I'll Text Blair and be like, "Did you hear what they said about you?" And she'll be like, "I don't have time to listen to all of them." (laughs) I actively
2: (laughs) avoid the podcast. I do. I actively avoid them a lot of times because I'm like, I don't want to hear what people are saying about me because I dish it out, but I cannot take
1: it.
0: Well, well, you should be glad to know that Mike, not Michael, Mike (laughs) Austin, he called you the John Lennon of Mormonism. And then said, that's because your Osler universe is how you might imagine what Mormonism could be if we included these things, which I loved. I totally was enveloped in that idea of imagine how this could work
2: out. I love that. And that is a lot what the book is. It it is a a reimagining Of all the doctrine and theology that already exists there. And I want it to exist outside of my imagination and other people's imaginations too. I'd love to see these changes and policies adapt and change to these ideas that I'm sharing the book about queerness already being right there in the doctrine. But the first step to that is just being able to imagine it. And it became clear to me while I was writing the book that One of the biggest stumbling blocks is people couldn't even imagine in a scenario in which these two things could play nicely with each other. And so that's what the book is. The imagining of playing nice together. And what would that kind
1: of celestial glory look like together? What does Zion really look like in this scenario? So I'm assuming a lot of people that were listening to this podcast will have heard of the book or have read it. But for those that haven't, what would you hope someone would take away from reading it?
2: Honestly, take away whatever feels good. And if nothing felt good, then throw the book in the trash can. The last thing I would ever want is for someone to read my book and then realize, oh, but that's not the reality or lived experience of what Mm -hmm. I'm going through right now. And it feels like you're gaslighting me. Awesome for that person toss my book in the trash. You don't have to love it. The whole point of queer Mormon theology is to make you feel good, is to create some sort of sense of peace and understanding. So for someone who's looking for that, I would hope they take away some amount of hope or joy that your queerness and your Mormonism should bring you hope and joy. You should be able to reach for your own happiness and invest in yourself and invest in the kind of Mormonism you want to see, invest in the kind of queerness you want to see. And to be able to take that and move forward with mostly hope.
1: And I love that. And you make it sound so simple. How have you gotten to a place of happiness and joy in this queerness and Mormonism space? Because for so many people, that just seems impossible. Oh, absolutely. So there's a few things. It's not simple
2: or easy at all. I've been in years of therapy. I love therapy. Therapy saved my life. I have not always engaged in this conversation gracefully I have thrown my fair share of rocks I haven't always been a stone catcher and so I want to just at least make clear that like this is not like hey just find your queer joy it's all good no for many years for me it wasn't all good and queerness and Mormonism actually brought me a lot of hardship and a lot of pain a lot of feeling misunderstood and honestly feeling very very rejected from both Latter-day Saints and post-Mormon communities. So getting to the place of queer joy was a journey in and of itself. But one of the things that has actually helped me a lot, and I know that this is not a popular opinion, but this is my lived experience, is that I love my religion, my ward, and my faith community so much more when I don't attend church. (laughs) I make very clear, hard boundaries about how I'm going to worship. And if I'm feeling disrespected inside a specific building or location or class, I'm not going to be able to feel the spirit. I'm not going to be able to do and say the things God needs me to do and say, I'm not even going to be able to be in a position to cultivate and flourish and worship and do all the wonderful things that religion can do for you. Right? So for me, I used to have severe panic attacks in church. And so I stepped away for a while and shocker, the panic attacks went away after I stopped attending church. I maybe had two or three panic attacks after that. And then they just kind of dissipated and left. And my body had a physical reaction to going inside a building that instigated my fight or flight response. And so if I'm going to be in a building that instigates that response, I can't worship. I can't feel heavenly parents' love for me. So that's one thing that has helped me on my journey towards queer joy. And after I stopped attending church, that's actually when I started writing queer Mormon theology. And make no mistake, people say, oh, that makes you inactive. Nope, that does not make you inactive. I am still engaged with a lot of folks in my ward. I'm engaged in all sorts of Mormon communities. I'm engaged with Mormon academia, tons of stuff at BYU. And I know that's a little easier for me because I'm literally in Provo, but I am still very actively involved in Mormonism. Just when it comes to Sunday worship, I need to feel safe to feel my heavenly parents' love. So getting to that point of queer joy also meant going through a lot of queer struggle. And I think that struggle was almost necessary in a lot of ways because, and I know this is so Mormon to say, and I almost hate that I'm saying it, but I'm saying it because it's true, is that in a weird way, I really kind of am thankful for some of those trials. Because I grew leaps and bounds in being able to understand more about who I am, what I really believe and how I want to engage with my faith. I was speaking at another book event and this nice straight woman, she came up to me and she says, sometimes I'm a little bit envious of queer people. And I was like, oh, really? Why is that? Tell me more. And she's like, you know who you are. And I'm like, oh, wow, I never looked at it from that perspective that in a lot of these struggles and a lot of these trials and being queer, I have had to re-examine every aspect of my Mormonism, every aspect of my gender, my biology, my orientation to be able to figure this out. And through going through that struggle and having those trials, I got to come out the other side knowing who I am carrying this queer joy with me and being able to share that with other people. Now, I don't want that to be misconstrued as, you know, just be thankful for your trials. And so every time a church leader says something horrible, think of it as a growing opportunity. Now people need to stop saying queer phobic things and you need to stand up for yourself. But I am thankful for a lot of the struggles I have experienced because she was exactly right. And it took a straight woman to show it to me. And she goes, you know who you are. And I was like, oh my gosh, it was like a Moana moment where I'm just like, I've crossed the ocean to find you. And I'm like, there I am. But at the same time, though, I do not want to in any way make anyone feel like that the journey to get here was easy. I mean, it, it wouldn't be melodramatic to say that the journey almost did kill me. Mm -hmm. It was, it was brutal for a while there, but once you start looking at these trials and these things as a way to really know who you are and to help you grow and be stronger, that really helped me a lot too. But mostly just, I stopped going to church and it was wonderful.
1: (laughs) I love your honesty. I've never
2: had a stronger testimony when I stopped going to
1: church. (laughs) you are not alone in that experience. <laughs> I think that that's the, the sort of people we want to touch as well,
0: that this is part of our community is that you don't have to reject any part of you. You don't have to reject the Mormonness, the queerness, whatever part of you, you can make it all work for you and figure out how it works for you. That's what I love about queer Mormon theology as well as it gives you the opportunity to look at, um, these issues through different eyes and say, oh, I can take that for myself. And I don't have to continually put up with religious persecution or trauma.
2: And there's this great quote by Brigham Young, who obviously is problematic for many, many reasons. But he said this one quote about polygamous wives. And he said, I never told you to follow your husbands to hell. And I love that quote so much because whenever a patriarch is ever saying anything that makes me feel uncomfortable about it not coming from a place of the spirit, I just think of that Brigham Young quote. So I think that about bishops. I think that about state presidents, area 70s. I'm like, never have to follow anyone to hell. You don't have to. I'm like, mm, that's useful.
1: Great boundary. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: We
0: have talked a little bit about suicidality on this podcast. Colette and I are both pretty open about wanting to address this more often. You talk about it as literally saving your life, not going to church. Can you talk a a little bit more about that? And also, you're in a marriage, you have children. We have this culture within Mormonism to also think about putting wives' lives below their their families' lives and and how that played all played into one another.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So as a little bit of background, just to be clear. And again, anything I say from here on out is just my experience. Anyone who's ever struggled with depression, anxiety, suicide, ideation, panic attacks, we're all going to have very different experiences. So I just don't want anyone to feel like I'm invalidating their experience because I share my experience with that preface. I will say after I stopped attending church, the panic attacks and the anxiety, everything just slowly went away. It just melted away. But one thing that came that I was not expecting was severe depression because once I left, I could exhale, I could breathe, but it was only because I completely lost my community. I lost a vision of everything I thought that my purpose on earth was supposed to be. And as you're saying, Kate, if you are raised or socialized as a Mormon femme or a Mormon woman, your existence is there to serve a husband and your children and your needs come second to that. And I would say that I was taught that in very unhealthy ways. Even me going to school, was something that was going to make me a better mother. I wasn't going to school to invest in myself. I was going to school to invest in other people. And even if I had to work or anything, it was so that I could provide for my children or support my husband while he was going to school. Whatever it was I was doing, it was for everybody else. And once I removed myself from my faith community and that image of what I was supposed to be and my purpose and everything, That for me is when everything had to be re-examined. I I felt completely alone. I felt ostracized. I felt like no one even knew how to talk to me anymore. They didn't even know how to engage with me. And frankly, let's be honest, I didn't know how to engage with them anymore. I was so traumatized. It was like being trying to talk to a bulldog who just came out of a abusive bullfight, and, and cause I was, I was angry and I was scared and I was traumatized. And so for me, after the anxiety and panic attacks went away, then came the depression and it was like, oh, everything you had imagined for yourself is now changed and different. And that was when I started really thinking about my reason for existing and why I was here and why I was doing the things I was doing. And it felt like everything I did, it, it felt like I was living my life for someone else. It felt like I was, it, and it's funny to say, because I know that like there are privileges with being bisexual in a het marriage. So our mixed orientation marriage is a little different than if you're gay in a mixed orientation marriage. However, I will say as being bi, I was still queer married to a straight person who did not understand everything I was going through. And just because I could choose between marrying a man and marrying a woman, which that's a problematic statement because choice is a really tricky word, but because I could choose to marry a man that somehow that was what I was supposed to do. That was the correct choice. And so I made correct choice after correct choice, according to all the dictates I was raised in. And it got to a point where I was like, I don't know who I am. I don't know why I'm existing. I don't know why I'm continuing to do these things. Why am I living this life? And you just feel utterly alone. That was probably when things were the lowest for me. A lot of it had to do with gender too. It wasn't just being bisexual. No matter how much I did with my body, no matter how much I changed it, no matter how much I altered it to be more of the perfect Mormon woman, the perfect Mormon wife, like I, I... I know people might not fully understand this, but I've literally been surgically altered and medicated and everything just to be the thing that I was supposed to be. It wasn't just a sexual orientation choice. It was a bodily choice. It was a gender choice. And everything came down to you're you're going to live your life for someone else. And I decided that one of the most harmful things that I was being taught in Mormonism was you will continue to make all the right choices and live a life. That's not you so that someday you'll die and live an eternity of living a life. That's not you. And I was like, there's no way out. There's no way out. Even death, even death, it didn't matter. There was no way out because whatever it was, it would be forever the gender performance, the orientation performance, the Mormon performance that everyone wanted. In a lot of ways, I felt like I didn't exist And even after I died, it wouldn't matter. I still wouldn't exist, at least in that narrative, in the way that it was being perceived. And that, again, is a lot of the reason why I wrote the book for Queer Mormon Theology, because what is the point of living a life that you don't want to live? So your eternal reward is to continue to live a life you don't want to live. There is no reward for the faithful queer person at the end of the tunnel, other than congratulations from all the people around you saying good job with your holy sacrifice and living in sacred loneliness. I hope that was good for you. There's more of it to come. I did not like that at all. That took a lot of time to deconstruct and finally realize, oh my gosh, let's pretend for a second that God is a benevolent being. Okay. What if God is a benevolent being? Why would God ever do that to anyone to give them desires or biology or gender or anything that is something that's going to stay with you forever, but you just have to fight against forever. And yes, I know we have trials and I know we all have urges to do bad things, but it's like the person you love really, that's one of those things. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And so once I was able to be able to be like, Oh, you know what? Sometimes people are just wrong. Sometimes people are just wrong it's not me, it's you. (laughs) And once I realized it's not me, it's you, I was like, oh my gosh, it's a game changer. And of course it takes years of therapy and deconstructing ideas and myths and theologies and all sorts of things they were taught about, even outside of Mormonism too, even just culturally being a femme and what that is supposed to be like and things like that. I had to deconstruct all that. And one of the things that was hard is because during that deconstruction process, I never felt like I fit in any one of the boxes just quite right, because we had the ex-Mormon box. And I I, I sympathize with a lot of ex-Mormons and ex-Mormons say a lot of really important things and really great things even, but I'm not an ex-Mormon. I still believe In gods and monsters and fairy tales and all those things that you're not supposed to believe in if you have higher advanced degrees. But I still do. And on the other side, I was like, oh, Latter day Saints, yes, you say a lot of great things and I still enjoy your company on certain occasions in certain buildings. But at the end of the day, I can't go through a deconstructive faith reimagining and understanding in a faithful Latter-day Saint pew in that kind of way. Just that I did not fit there. And then I I did some work in feminist groups and Mormon feminist groups, love Mormon feminist groups, agree with tons of stuff that Mormon feminists are doing and saying and going through and sympathizing with. I've had to go through a lot of that stuff too. But when I went into a lot of Mormon feminist spaces, there was still some, I would just, politely say heteronormativity and a little bit of queer antagonism still the neglect of women of color. And there was this visceral hatred of polygamy. And I did not have that. I have never had the hatred of polygamy. And so anytime I tried to bring up the idea that maybe not all people hate polygamy and maybe bisexual women are more into it than others because We get our sister wife and we have a husband. And anytime I tried to talk about this in a constructive way, I was shut down a lot. But I don't want to say that about everyone. Like if anybody follows Lindsay Hanson Park's work, she has been very open-minded and really put herself out there to really hear what I had to say about it when hating polygamy is in vogue. You know what I mean? (laughs) Because what what I like is not in vogue. Mm -hmm. So going through this faith transition, this process, there's like all these little pockets and groups. I love following Mormons of color and the groups that they have developed. But obviously my place is to be quiet and listen. So Mm -hmm. I don't go through and deconstruct my faith in marginalized groups to just colonize them. So that definitely wasn't an option either. I love queer Mormon spaces. Queer Mormon spaces are where I finally felt like I could take a few deep breaths. And do we always get it right? No. Do we make a lot of mistakes? Are we neglectful? Do we need to do better, especially including... Uh, Queer voices of color? Absolutely. But one thing I've loved about being able to go through this faith transition, this faith process in queer Mormon spaces, is that you really are at the intersection of a lot of unique things. Like we have to talk about issues of race as it relates to queerness, we have to talk about issues of gender, feminism, trans bodies as it relates to queerness. We have to talk about economics and how being a poor queer person is not the same as being a queer person with health insurance. In the queer Mormon community, we have to look at some of these intersections in ways that other groups haven't been confronted with as robustly as queer Mormons have. And so queer Mormonism is really the place where I found a home. I found a landing spot. I was able to talk to people, make friends and get a therapist who is competent in queer trauma and Mormon trauma, both are so, so important, but sorry, I feel like I blathered on and got a little off topic there, but I I would say that it's been a long journey and the queer joy doesn't come without the trials, but I'm really thankful for the queer Mormon spaces I found that has been able to work with that with me, even when I wasn't totally lovable at the time. (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely love everything you just said. I think that probably Colette
0: and I both can very much relate with everything that you've just said so so appreciate all of that there are two things that I want to bring up from queer Mormon theology that you've touched on in your last answer the first is your concept of celestial genocide which you talk a little bit in that last answer but I, I hope that maybe you can expand that and so that we can start using this in everyday Mormon spaces so that we recognize what it is we're doing. The second question is about polygamy, but I'll get to that after maybe you can explain that a
1: little bit.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a short section in the book that talks about celestial genocide. And this is a term I came up with to basically describe what I was going through in the depths of my depression and faith reconstruction. It's the idea Celestial genocide is that after we die, whatever it is about you that doesn't fit the cisgender, heterosexual, white supremacist view of what humanity should look like, the rest of it will be completely eliminated. It's a type of genocide. So for example, another type of celestial genocide is indigenous people. You will get whiter as you get more righteous. Okay, that's celestial genocide. Brother Jones, you will have your same-sex attraction taken away when you die and go to the celestial kingdom. That's celestial genocide, Sister Smith. Guess what? You won't want to cross Jess anymore, and we'll continue to call you by he pronouns in the next life. That's celestial genocide. You're taking essential aspects and characteristics of who we are that harm no one, harm, and we're saying no, they don't fit our Puritan culture. And our Puritan culture says that you need to be this thing, and so when you all die. That'll be the genocide of all things, queer, all things, Brown, anything that doesn't really fit, you know, cis white supremacist worldview. It needed to be addressed. And I felt like it needed a name because that's what I was feeling. I was like, you don't want me to exist. And then people would gaslight me. I even had family members who would say, that's not true. Of course we want you to exist. I'm like, no. You want my performance. You like the way I make you feel when I show up looking like this, when I hold my husband's hand, when I sacrifice my needs for my children, that's what you want. And that's not me. You want the performance of me. And guess what? If I don't even know who I am, how are you ever going to know who I am? You can't. You can't. And so I came up with the term celestial genocide. And I was like, that's what it is. It's the erasure of your existence because it didn't fit what they thought I was supposed to be. Absolutely. And I've thought of this concept before, and
0: I think it's so important to have a name for it now. Now we can actually talk about this as a thing that happens. I think that I appreciate this most about your book. The second thing is about polygamy. So you and I also have pretty similar ideas about polygamy, and I think that this jumps off of celestial genocide to say, what do we do with polygamy as a queer thing? So when you go to these groups that are feminist groups and they're saying polygamy is the worst, it is a sort of queer erasure.
2: It is a little bit of queer erasure and it is a little bit of delegitimizing, especially among women or among femmes who have been socialized in that context. So first I just want to honor and appreciate that it makes total sense to me why someone would hate polygamy, especially a cis straight woman. It makes all the sense in the world why you would hate this thing. You never want to practice it. It's awful. Throw it away in the garbage. Let's say you're even a fundamentalist woman who has been in a very abusive and manipulative and harmful situation. You hate polygamy. Awesome. I love it. You go ahead and hate that as long as you need to hate that. And I just want to totally just make sure that everybody, you have valid reasons for why you hate polygamy. I'm seeing those and I'm honoring those. For me, I had a little bit different experience and I've noticed that there are a lot of other queer women and queer folks who saw polygamy for better and worse as a way to get their needs met in a system that would not meet our needs for me. I don't know why I thought this. This is probably just Blair's little bisexual teenage brain running away with her. But I had always envisioned polygamy as like, yep, I got me. I got my sister wives. We are living the life of raising babies. Oh my gosh, we're going to bake homemade bread and we're going to can pickles. It's going to be amazing. We're going to raise our babies together. Oh yeah, that's our husband over there. He's great. Yeah, he does stuff. And this is going to be so wonderful. I could not wait to get my sister wife, because to me, it was just the gayness coming out. It was just the gayness. (laughs) I could not wait to meet her and start a life with her. And we were going to go on all these journeys and adventures together. And I never saw this woman as my competition. I saw her as my companion. And the thing is, I still saw a husband there and that was great and everything too. But the sister wife, come on, it was the sister wife. And I didn't see her necessarily as a sister wife as just the wife. And so I had this weird growing up with Mormonism and seeing polygamy as this way to be like, oh, I can get my needs met or I can live the life I want to live. There's this queer door here that I could work with. And it wasn't until later when I started studying polygamy and realizing how unbelievably androcentric, patriarchal, at times abusive and manipulative and coercive the practice was. and I'm like, oh, I see why everyone hates it now. But for me, I acknowledge all those things are there. And this is my family we're talking about too. I come from polygamous family members. I come from generations of polygamous women and polyandrous women. And so I'm talking about my family when I say this. And so, yes, it was practiced immorally in a lot of ways, but so has monogamy. And people will say polygamy is oppressive to women. Monogamy is oppressive to women. It was literally about a husband purchasing you from your father. And under coverture laws and European cultures, your identity was absolved under your husband's name. So I wouldn't even be Blair Osler. I would be Mrs. Andrew Osler. And it's like, okay, y'all, it's all patriarchal. It's all oppressive. (laughs) And so if you're going to sit and criticize polygamy, yeah, let's do it. But all those criticisms that you're saying in polygamy, they all exist in monogamy. It all exists within the institution of marriage. So we have to start thinking bigger. We have to start thinking around just our implicit biases and prejudices. And how do we actually make this work for people? That's when I came up with the queer polygamy model. And people are like, Why did you call it queer polygamy? I guess that really is a provocative title if you've never entered the Oslerverse before. If you have been to the (laughs) Oslerverse, queer polygamy is just quite natural. It's all the latest (laughs) and greatest. It's the rage. But for those outside the Oslerverse, they're like, what is this? And I named it queer polygamy for a couple reasons. The first reason is I needed something to jolt people away from when you say the word polygamy, one man, and a bunch of oppressed women. I needed to jolt your brain out of that. And so by putting the word queer in front of it, it jolted you in a way that you needed to be jolted. I also included queer because I borrow a lot of the ideas and terminologies of the queer community to describe this new polygamous model. What the queer polygamy model is not It is not, this is how you should live your life. This is how your orientation should work. You should enter into this marriage. Queer polygamy model is be with the people you want to be with and don't be with the people you don't want to be with. And it really is written specifically for a Mormon audience. So if you're not Mormon or have never studied Mormonism or you're not involved in Mormon academia, the the queer polygamy model is just going to fly right past you. But for those who understand Mormonism, this is written specifically for you. And it talks about ceilings, eternal ceilings, and how ceilings really kind of web us in multiple connections anyway. It kind of breaks down and deconstructs ideas about patriarchal monogamy and patriarchal polygamy. Another thing it does, one of the best compliments I ever received was from a lovely Hawaiian queer woman who was like... This is just how I pictured my family and my Hawaiian culture is queer polygamy. It's really Mm -hmm. just people being with the people they love and want to be with and how people engage in those relationships is up to them. So for a lot of queer people, queer polygamy was one of their favorite chapters for a lot of straight feminist women. It was not their favorite chapter. (laughs) I actually went on a Mormon feminist podcast where they're like, we want to do a podcast on queer Mormon theology, but we're going to skip the chapter on queer polygamy. (laughs) And I'm like, that's okay. It's your podcast. It's your platform. You know, your listeners will roll with that. That's totally okay. So it's really interesting to see. I love hearing the feedback from people about which chapters they like and which chapters they didn't like. Because what it really does is it, in a lot of ways tells me a lot about where they're at in their faith journey and what is going on in different communities. Overall though, queer polygamy is probably the cherry on top of the cake of the book. It, I actually love the, I love that chapter. It's a great chapter. And I also love right after the chapter on queer polygamy, right after that, I talk about the concept of eternity. And I think that's really important. So I hope that after people read queer polygamy, they read the next section in that same chapter. It's just a little subheaded section about imagining eternity, because eternity is a very long time. And if you want to talk, to me about cisgender heterosexual monogamy for all eternity. Well, let's have that conversation. Yeah, let's go all the way with that conversation. And we'll see where that takes us. So that's really important. It it, it very much complements the queer polygamy model. Just really fast. I also really appreciate this chapter
0: as a highlight of colonialism within Mormonism. So Paul Reeve talks about in Religion of a Different Color he points out that Mormonism with polygamy is brought into the United States culture, and when you get rid of polygamy, you are brought into this colonizer realm. And so, I think bringing that out and highlighting that the issues that you have with polygamy are the same issues that you have with monogamy, you just haven't thought about it, is really important as we think about colonization.
2: Well, absolutely. And polygamy and part of the reason Mormons were persecuted with polygamy is a lot of them were white, but it's because it was seen as a quote barbaric practice. And they thought it was barbaric because indigenous peoples and people of color were practicing some sort of analogous practice. I don't want to say it's actually polygamy because then people are going to think of it in a very patriarchal heterosexual colonist kind of way. And I don't want to misrepresent someone else's culture, but some sort of Group family structure, a multi family structure type thing. And Mormons were doing a type of that same kind of non monogamous multi family structure. And that is going to make a lot of Puritan Christians upset that Mormons are engaging in this barbaric practice because it is something that the indigenous peoples and people of color were practicing, which sadly, Mormons got more racist and denounce the practice. And I have a lot of thoughts on that too, on how basically the white straight cis Mormon is really just running away from all the queerness and people of color and queer people specifically are getting the brunt of that, the backlash of that intergenerational trauma.
1: I so appreciate your insights. I know for me, when I first started thinking about eternity, if all that matters is we're sealed to God. Why does it matter the gender of my partner? And so that chapter did speak to me. Another thing we wanted to ask you is about being bi in a het marriage. And we know bi erasure exists. And what has that experience been like?
2: Absolutely. So the tricky thing about bi erasure and bi privilege is they go hand in hand because you're able to hide in the closet when you want to hide in the closet. But in hiding in the closet, sometimes you're completely erased from the conversation. And so it's actually done a lot of harm, not just by people, but this has done a lot of harm to gay people too. Cause there's Mm -hmm. this assumption that it's a mutually exclusive category. You're either straight or you're gay. And if you erase that bisexual experience while also weaponizing it and being like, see gay people, look at these gay people over here, really bisexual, look mm-hmm. at these gay people over here entering into straight marriages and it's working. Well, guess what? They're not actually gay. They're kind of gay, but they're kind of straight too. They're actually bi. And that's a little bit different experience. No, it's not. They're gay people who have been born again, reformed sinners and everything. This is not going to help anyone. This is, mm-hmm. is going to actually cause a lot of harm and damage for me bi erasure was so prevalent when I was a teenager that I didn't know bisexuality existed, which is so funny because I knew I was attracted to girls at school, but mm-hmm. there was no word for it because I knew I was attracted to boys. And so if I was attracted to boys, I knew I wasn't gay. So I took the default that being attracted to boys meant I wasn't gay, not attracted to girls makes me gay because <laughs> there was no bisexual language for me to express this. So I genuinely, honest to goodness, thought little 14-year-old Blair really thought that all girls were attracted to both boys and girls, that that was the default and normal. But for some reason, I didn't know why you were just supposed to pick the boys. And I didn't know why, but that's just what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pick the boys, mm-hmm. but all the girls like the girls too. And all the girls knew this. And it wasn't until puberty and things started changing. And it was at that point, I realized that was not the default. So I'm like, Hey girls, Tolly, what's up? Oh my gosh, you want to, or just like... Oh no. Oh, that's not how this, yeah, I was just joking. Oh my gosh. She thought I was serious. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, so not all the girls like the girls, the way Blair likes the girls. Okay. Duly noted. I'm going to put that one in my bank for later. So I don't embarrass myself at the next junior high dance. So I didn't figure out I was quote bisexual, the word bisexual. So like I knew I was attracted to girls, but the word bisexual, it didn't exist until I was an adult. And when I was an adult, I was like, you can be both. That's me. You guys, it's me. You know, they have a word for this. Oh my gosh. Can you tell
0: us if it was after you were married? Because I think that any of our listeners will have this experience where they're married and then they realize they're bisexual. And then what do you do about that?
2: Oh, absolutely. So the weird thing is, again, it was just a lack of understanding, a lack of words, a lack of terminology, because the experience was there. I just didn't have everything I needed to describe what was happening or what was going on. And so my husband knew I was attracted to women. And of course, in his heterosexual mind, he's like, oh, cool. That's hot, you know, like whatever. But he didn't really take it seriously. For him, it was like, a kink. It wasn't a legitimate orientation. And so he knew I was attracted to women and that was fine. It wasn't a big deal. It didn't become a big deal until prop eight. And the church really put their foot down and he was on one side and I was on the other side. And that was a turbulent time in our marriage. It was a very turbulent time. We had strong disagreements about what that was. And it eventually got to the point where I was like, I can't talk about this with you anymore. It makes me want to punch you in the face. That's how much I disagree with you right now. And so that, that was really tricky. Some fast forward, some faith transitioning things happened for him. And in his life, he ended up working at the Disney diversity program and he met tons of gay people and like wonderful gay Disney loving dudes and he was just like everything he thought about queer people he realized oh this is not the big bad boogeyman queer people are okay And then he actually realized, and it took a long time for him to come around to saying I was bisexual. It was harder to put the label on it. It's not SSA it's bisexual. Okay. Mm -hmm. But once he did that's orientation, euphoria right there was not being told I struggle or I have a sin, or I need to read a conference talk, but Oh, Blair's bisexual. That was orientation euphoria. It's like, yes, call me by my correct orientation, please. So understanding I was bisexual took a lot longer just because of bi erasure, because I didn't know that was one of the things, but I'm so glad I did keep poking and prodding at that. And for a lot of women, especially women too, I feel like in a lot of ways, this isn't to negate anything that men go through, but just (coughs) the Mormon femme woman experience you're kind of taught you don't have a sexuality in a lot of ways. There's just the lack thereof or whatever there is, you just hold on to that and you're going to give that to a man someday. And so if you're figuring this out later in life as a woman, and maybe you're in your thirties, maybe in your forties, maybe in your seventies and you're like, Oh my gosh, I feel like such a bonehead. I just figured this out. And for some people they're like, I'm actually just a lesbian. Turns out sex isn't supposed to be like washing the dishes. And so if that's you, that's totally okay. Don't feel bad. Don't feel like, you should have figured things out sooner. There's everything in our path as Mormon women to stop us from discovering our own sexuality, quite frankly. And whatever we do discover, we hide it away, put it in a box, and your husband gets to open it on the wedding night. And that's just not a healthy way to look at one's body and orientation and how to engage in those kinds of things. So sometimes it does take bi people a little bit longer and lesbians too. It can take a really long time because of the amount of erasure and shaming that goes
1: with it. Just the overall shame of sexuality. That's one reason I'm pursuing additional training to become a sex therapist. Mormons are screwed up with sex in general. Then you add any sort of clearness on top of it and it's rough. And so you are not alone in that experience of just not even having the language. I was dating a woman for a while and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm totally straight. This is just a weird loop. Like people fall for other women all the time and are still straight. Right. <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, totally. This is straight. This is straight. Definitely.
2: <laughs> oh, that's funny. No, I'm glad that you brought up the idea of overall sex education too. Cause I think a lot of the problems with queer antagonism directed at the queer community from straight Mormons is also just tied up in their own sexual trauma and shaming. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a cis straight guy tell me, look, we all have to curb our sexual appetites and we all da 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 da. And I was like, Are you still carrying a lot of baggage and guilt about the fact that you masturbated and looked at porn when you were in your twenties? Because it feels like you're throwing that at the queer community when really you just need to not feel bad about that anymore. Okay. You can just let that go because you're right. There's so much sexual shaming for everyone. And so Mm -hmm. the queer community gets pointed out a lot for that. Like, look, we all have to play by the rules. I'm like, Well, the rules aren't fair to you either. Maybe you don't deserve to be shamed for liking women any more than a lesbian deserves to be shamed for liking women, okay? Now, be respectful. Women aren't there for you, but you don't need to be ashamed of that. I do feel that there could be a lot of improvements made in everyone's mental health with a little more sex-positive education
1: and understanding. Agreed. hundred (laughs) percent.
2: In addition
0: to this, thank you so much for normalizing this conversation. The first conversation I had with Blair one-on-one, I called them in a panic (laughs) to say, my life is spiraling out of control. We've got all this situation. And Blair kind of wide-eyed looked at me and it was like, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure how to, how to help you with this, but just know you're going to be fine. But you're one of the first people that I like really came out to and you offered so much of making me feel normal. And I think this interview can help so many people feel normal. One element though, I think this is different for wives. I want to say wives, people who were assigned female birth were wives to husbands and their husbands having a harder time than if their husbands were coming out to their wives because of this patriarchy. Do you
2: see that? Do you think that? Absolutely. Because it, what it really is, is just one more concession that women are supposed to make for the family. You give up all sorts of things for the family. Why can't you just give up your sexuality? Straight women are already kind of doing this too. So why can't you just do this? So there is an extra layer of shaming in that we, one, Um, are expected to make concessions all the time. Two, we're kind of taught we don't really have a sexuality. And then three, when we do or say something about it, it's just not taken as seriously. And even lesbianism, even same-sex couples are not taken as seriously or even as threatening as a same-sex male couple because we don't take women's sexuality seriously. So yeah, I would totally agree with you, Kate. You're absolutely right. Oh, and side tangent, I am so glad you called me. And I'm just glad I didn't make a complete fool of myself when you called because I'm all I want to do is help, but I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) So I'm glad you called and I'm glad that it was a positive
1: memory for you. And I think that goes to show just the importance of, we don't need to know the answers, but as queer individuals that grew up Mormon, we need community. We Mm -hmm. don't need someone to tell us what to do. We need people that get it. And that can just be like, yeah, this is hard. And I'm sorry. And I'll sit with you. (laughs) Absolutely. Amen. Amen. And that's why we're so excited for this podcast to hopefully help form that for people to help people realize they're not alone. I do want to talk about, so Blair,
0: in addition to have written this book and multiple articles, has also done a bunch of podcasts. Two I would recommend is Questions from the Closet. The other one is Listen, Learn, and Love. And the Listen, Learn, and Love one taught me so much. I remember exactly where I was listening to it. I was running and I was literally out loud going, yes oh my gosh i've never thought of this and one of those things was you talk about being intersex and the different ways you can be intersex and i would encourage people who don't know to listen to both those podcasts because you explain it so well and and in depth but the other thing was how intersex folks are often doing the same things that trans folks are doing and in mormonism actually in the general handbook They make this distinction. If you're intersex, it's okay. And if you're trans, it's not okay. So can you talk about some of the ways that those things intersect
2: and how that works for
0: you and maybe
2: your struggles with that? Absolutely. So just to clarify, the only thing that makes intersex people in common with each other is that somewhere along the way... Your reproductive anatomy went awry. And that can happen in so many different ways. And so there's no one example of intersex you can point at and be like, that's intersex, because it is such a broad manifestation of biological variances. So when I talk about my intersex experience, I just have to clarify someone else's intersex experience is going to be completely different from mine. And that is 100% okay. And also, the part in
0: the, the episode that I'm specifically talking about, cause you talk about being intersex in multiple different ways. The one that hit me the hardest was talking about your doctor receiving your testosterone numbers and saying, don't worry, you're still a woman. <laughs> that was something that really hit me at like, what level are you not
2: anymore? And that's what you say in the podcast too. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, just to, the paraphrase for the listeners at home who haven't heard the other podcast, but I went to the doctor and I go to a lot of doctors for a lot of things. And I'm on a lot of medications for the things, but I was having my testosterone levels and my other hormones regulated because sometimes I won't menstruate for a year. And so they have to put me on hormones to make me menstruate. Cause you, you probably should be doing that. If you have the equipment to do it anyway, long story short, I was having my testosterone check and I picked up the phone and I was talking with the nurse and we went through all the other ones. And then it came to the testosterone one. She rattled off the number and she goes, it's a little high and it could be contributing to some of your other abnormalities, but don't worry. You're still a woman. <laughs> and like you, Kate, it was in that moment, my light bulb went off and I was just like, Oh my gosh. Y'all are just assigning people things based on numbers and who knows what else you're doing back there in your lab. You don't get to call me a woman. I'm not a woman. I don't know. That was the moment for me where I was just like, oh my gosh, biological sex is way more complicated than what anybody is really understanding. And I wouldn't care if it wasn't my body, but it was my body we're talking about here. I wouldn't be a specialist on my hormones and reproductive anatomy if I didn't have to be. And so with not having the privilege of a regular anatomy, I'm able to deconstruct a lot of these things. So for me, what was your original question again about being intersex? Oh, policy, handbook, church. Okay. So here's the weird thing, right? Okay. So I'm going to give a shameless plug. I have a dialogue article coming out in the winter issue. It's called queer bodies, queer policies, and queer technologies. And it talks about the church's policy on queer bodies. It talks about technologies and how we're changing and adapting and molding queer bodies and how this all fits together. So this article is going to basically address all that stuff you you want to talk about. So I'll just give you some of the highlights. Basically the church is in this really weird, awkward position and the church is not anti-technology and the church is not even anti-hormones, anti-transitioning. In some instances, they are even pro-transitioning. Intersex people are encouraged to make a choice get rid of the androgyny, make a choice and go with that one. In some documented cases, the church has even had someone who found out they were intersex decided to transition and the church allowed it because of the hard facts of their biology. They were assigned male and doing male things and realized, oh my gosh, they're reproductive anatomy is so much different than everything they thought it was. And then he transitioned to she, sorry, if I didn't get the pronouns, right. And she was no longer allowed to use the priesthood after that, which was super interesting, even as an intersex person, right? Because if you pick the female side, it comes with all the female things. So in some ways, the church encourages the use of HRT, hormone replacement therapy, includes surgeries, anything that makes you conform to a gender binary and Intersex people as that one weird case where you get to choose. They let us choose. Now, for me, I mostly conform to the assignment I've had. However, I had to actively conform to that assignment. It wasn't something that happened naturally or easy for me. I actually had to go that direction. But for trans people, Oh, no, you do not get to choose the way intersex people choose. In fact, it's actually the opposite. You are held to a higher level of accountability because you were given an assignment. Your biology conforms to that assignment, which is hilarious because it's just a tautology. It's like saying the same thing twice. You are a man. Why? Oh, because I said you're a man oh, that really clears it up. Thank you. That's very helpful. So they assign you male, your biology conforms to what they said is male. And so you don't get a transition. You don't get these choices. You don't get access to the technologies. And they actually put policies in the handbook in place to thwart your ability and access to those without church discipline and other things. And so it's really one way the church is not anti-technology, but pro-technology to construct an artificial cisgender heterosexual binary, because that's what they want me to look like, a cisgender heterosexual, which is funny because that's what I pass for. And I'm like, y'all don't know half of it. Okay. (laughs) But it's really interesting because the church is in a bind because every day more and more, and I... I was not comfortable talking about my biological variances because that's not what a Mormon woman was supposed to be. And there's a lot of internal shame of any kind of masculine qualities, any kind of androgyny makes you completely undesirable. How am I going to be a Mormon mommy blogger if I have a beard? So I was very shameful about it and would not even talk about it, even until recently. And not only that, the only reason I've been more comfortable and open talking about it within the last year or two is because a a lot of trans people that I know and love, they told me they were intersex and they talked about their intersex experience and how it affected their transitioning and things like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like, you're, you're like me. It's me. You're like me. And so in talking with these amazing, wonderful, mostly trans women, I was like, we're different, but we're also not as different as people want to believe because biological sex is complicated. And so it's really from, again, trans women for the win, once again, it's like, well, you know what, Blair, you can actually speak up and stand up for yourself and have pride in your biology. Me? I can't try. And so the intersex pride is still something I'm working on and something I aspire to. I'm still deconstructing a lot of shame in that department. But at the same time, being open about it has been so unbelievable because so many people you would believe to be cisbinary are like, oh no, I'm intersex too. And no one would ever know if I listed all my Facebook friends, Instagram friends who contacted me are like, oh no, I have an intersex condition. I was like, what? you, you too. And now I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I just feel put the lighthouse out, shine the light. Anybody who wants to come, come over here and let's talk about it because contrary to popular belief. And this is the tricky thing. People think that if you're intersex, that you owe everyone androgyny because there is this kind of toxicity about authenticity right now. And I love living my authentic queer life and everything, but the toxicity of authenticity is people saying, well, if you're not living your fullest, queerest life and expression openly for everyone to see and enjoy, then are you even being true to yourself? Are you even living your best queer life if you fit into a cis binary category, blah, 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 blah? And I'm like, oh no, 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 no. I reserve my androgyny for who I want to show it to. No one is entitled to my androgyny. And I do, I give my androgyny to my husband because he thinks I'm beautiful no matter what. So being intersex is weird because people don't believe you're intersex unless you give them androgyny because that's what they have pictured in the mind. And contrary to popular belief, the majority of intersex people from day one have been conditioned to pick into the binary and we're so good at it in one way or another that we go unnoticed. And because that's exactly what they wanted to do. It was supposed to be get rid of androgyny. So for me, that's kind of where I adopted the part of the reason I adopted the she, they, he as well, because it's a reclamation of all the parts of me that are the he that I was told I was supposed to hide. It's all the parts of me that are they, and I still grapple with and she, because that's what I look like to most people, which is totally fine. All the pronouns bring me joy because I am part of all these things and that's okay. Thank you so much. There
0: was another part of of that podcast. That podcast is just really outstanding. I like that you you have this, you do have an authenticity about this and you don't, you don't at any point apologize for any part of it. It's just how it is. And one one other element that I really liked was that you say you can find out your intersex at any point in your life because we don't think about all of these ways that we can be intersex that... There are many ways if you don't have a physical condition, you're not going to find out until you're like 24 or 25. And what does that do to a person when we've already assigned them something and, and they find out later that there's something different about their body or that sort of thing? I also think that intersex liberation is trans liberation, that once we see intersex bodies more, we can understand the transgender Um, experience a little bit more. So I appreciate you being willing and open to talking about that because it's part of my personal liberation
2: as well. Good. I'm so glad to hear it. I feel like our conceptual ideas about biological sex assignments revolves exclusively around the morphology of your genitals. That's what people think of first. And then when people found out that argument falls apart really quickly for trans discrimination, for trans people who have had genital confirmation surgery, they went straight to chromosomes. I was like, Oh, you want to talk about karyotypes? Let's talk about all the complexities of karyotypes. This is going to be fun. Let's go down that route. And turns out that's a lot more complicated than people want to imagine anyway. And it turns out there's a lot of weird things going around with your biological sex and reproductive anatomy. So for that reason, this is why different intersex people will have very, very different experiences. So hypothetically, for example, again, respect everyone's individual experience. If you were an intersex person who it, the intersex experience was the morphology of your genitals, like you had an enlarged clitoris that resembled a penis or something like that, because these are homologous organs, you may have had surgery without your consent. And you may have been told one thing and lied to your entire life. That is a completely different experience than what happened to me because I grew up thinking I was just a woman. Most people usually find out your intersex during a few different parts of life. If it has to do with the morphology of your genitals, it usually happen at birth because that's how we assign biological sex, which by the way, for the listeners is no way comprehensive. There's no way you can tell a person's biological sex by looking at their crotch. Okay. Not possible. Anyway. So if you, if you had non-binary genitals that's going to be the first marker for someone who might find out. The next would usually be around puberty. When you start to go through certain changes, the example I use is, I love this guy, wonderful Ted talk. He gave about how he found out he was intersex because he was having abdominal pains as a teen. And it turns out he had a fully functioning uterus and he needed to menstruate, but there was no way for the menses to exit the body. So he had to have emergency surgery and things like that. So some people find out around puberty. For me, it was a tie between puberty and trying to have babies. So intersex variations and biological sex in general is predicated on biological reproductive utility, your ability to either get pregnant or get someone pregnant and make babies and put them in the world. That's why we assign a biological sex. And so if you go to make babies, you may find out things about yourself that you didn't know existed because they weren't visible from the outside looking in. I had some complications during puberty with menstruating and, excessive body hair, we'll say, I look like a Sasquatch to be honest with you, but it wasn't until I tried to get pregnant that we took a look inside. And then eventually I did get pregnant and I had C-sections and things like that. And the doctors who operated on me and yes, plural, there was multiple surgeons in the room because when I deliver, it is not a regular experience. There's two surgeons in the room and a pediatrician and all sorts of things. They actually got to go in and take a look at my reproductive anatomy and my uterus and everything. They actually photographed it for medical journals. They're just like, I don't, I, I, I don't know what that thing is, but it gestated a baby, you know? <laughs> so that's when I found out. For some people, if they don't want to have children or don't have those things, they may be intersex their entire life and never find out and just never know. So we'll never get an exact intersex head count because one, one, Some people never find out too. There's a lot of debate around the actual definition of intersex. So some people define me as not intersex because I don't have non-binary genitals. They'll say, it's all about genitals. It's only genitals. And I'm like, what about people with androgen and sensitivity syndrome who have different chromosomes? What about them? And then other people will say, oh, it has nothing to do with your genitals at all. It has everything to do with chromosomes. Your chromosomes determine your sex. And so if you're XX or XY, it doesn't matter how those manifest. That is the assignment and anything in between that's true intersex. So, it's really tricky to get like an, because ex- people will be like, oh, they're as common as redheads. And we're like, well, kind of, but we have no idea what definition we're working with. There's no way to get an accurate head count. I mean, if everybody in the world went to the hospital, had a full physical sex examination of their internal reproductive anatomy, hormones, endocrinology, and everything, then maybe we could figure out who's truly intersex. So it is really tricky because under some definitions, I'm not intersex. And so under some definitions, I am. The other thing about intersex is actually the medical field is actually getting away from the term intersex. And so I still use it because some people don't even know what intersex is. People are actually calling it disorders in sexual development. So DSD, that's what's in the DSM-5. And I actually don't prefer that because I don't think all biological variances should be considered disorders because some people might decide, yes, this is a disorder and I want it fixed. But some people may decide, no, it's not a disorder. I'm just naturally intersex androgynous. It's not Mm -hmm. a disorder in sexual development. The other thing is it's even more ambiguous. So disorders in sexual development could be a guy with low sperm count. So it's really interesting, the conversation around the biological sex spectrum. What is intersex? Who counts? Who doesn't? Oh, we're not using that word anymore. We're using disorders and sexual development. Well, that's even more ambiguous than the other words we were using. And so if there's anything anybody takes away from the intersex conversation, it's one biological sex, is anything but binary. It's bimodal, meaning most people fall on the two ends in the clusters. It's bimodal. That's totally fine. No one has a problem with that. But it is a spectrum and it is more complicated than just One on one end and one on the other end. The other thing I would ask them to take away from the conversation, because biological sex is so complicated, we're still learning and still discovering new ideas about how the body works. Be nicer to trans people. Trans people are having experiences that we don't fully understand or know about because... I love the argument that a lot of trans people are saying that trans people are intersex because they're undergoing these transitions. And it's a a, a type of intersex and a type of androgyny for some trans people, not all trans people. And I think that's beautiful too. Like any trans person who wants to claim the I come claim it. Yep. You're on my team automatically. I love that. And so one biological sex is complicated Two be nicer to trans people. And third, the most important one, if you can fight for equal access to medical care for trans and intersex bodies, it makes a world of difference. I am in, in a considerably privileged marriage in which my husband generally for most of our marriage has had good health care, but a lot of the stuff I've had to deal with it has costed us thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And the funny thing is, sometimes I worry about how much different my life would be if I just didn't have access to any of the care. If I just couldn't fit a binary, it like I just didn't have the money to be perceived as cis. So be nice, love each other, biological sex is complicated. And let's get some
1: universal health care up in here for everyone. For everyone. Preach. <laughs> Oh man. Well, I know I so appreciate this time with you. I'm not sure if there's anything else that you feel like we should have asked you or that you wanted to talk about or Kate, anything you wanted to ask. I know this has gone a little long, but I just love talking with you and learning from you.
2: I love talking with you two. You two are wonderful. This has been delightful. I'm so glad you guys are heading this up. And I mean, I'm all for one more queer podcast. Yes. Let's do it.
1: Let's do it. (laughs) We're here for it. Awesome. If there's nothing else, we'll just wrap up then. And we just want to say thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today. Please feel free to follow rate and review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram called DeQueer. queer. See you next time.